When they landed, they saw a fire there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter got up and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But the net hadn't torn, even with so many fish. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time. Do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another will tie your belt and lead you where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Thanks, So it's strange to me that forgiveness of sins is so far down in the Apostles' Creed. To be sure, the creed isn't ranked in order of importance, but most of us inside the church and many on the outside of the church looking in have experienced like almost like a forced confession at the door. We think we believe in the forgiveness of sins as uh, coming as the penultimate line rather than uh, bumped up to the beginning. I, I think that's sort of a subtle bit of good news for us. It has like its own sort of internal logic of belief. You see, while we identify as forgiven, our forgiveness is a fundamental aspect of who we are and how we can be for others. While that's all true, our ability to be that and our ability to pay that sort of grace forward is completely incredible, completely unbelievable, apart from everything that's come before this in the creed apart from the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who gives to us and forgives us eternally. So we belong to this God way before we believe in this God by being caught up in the love of God. We must know this God who creates and redeems and gives newness of life before we can ever know or sustain forgiveness. The core of Christian belief then isn't like what many of us were taught or experienced. The article of the Apostles' Creed that we're talking about today isn't we believe in sin. It's actually we believe in the forgiveness of sin. There isn't 
bad news in front of the good news. Rather, there's only God. There's only the source of life and hope and repair. In light of this good God who makes good things over and over, called it good, and when God came to make us, God said that we are very good. And it's in light of this good God that makes good things that we start to see the cracks and the warps and the distortions and the idolatries and the harm and the damage. And then, like David, like what the stars read, we ask for forgiveness. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. To be sure, this prayer, Psalm 51, is itself a no. It's a no to the many ways that we've been enslaved by sin and death. It's a no to the self-deception that that 1 John opens up with. That self-deception. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This prayer is a this prayer for forgiveness is a no to any supremacy other than the supremacy of the wounded healer Christ who continues to bring about his kingdom. Praying for forgiveness is a no to all the impurities of heart that fog our ability to see God and work with God to create lives of intimacy and fidelity and peace. To ask for to pray for forgiveness is a no to our selfishness in our violence. But when we pray for forgiveness, God always says yes. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and our sins, <clears throat> forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. That's the second half of that First John 1 passage. Confession and forgiveness are at the center of the life of faith and faithfulness. By confessing the ways that we don't stack up, the ways that we fail, the big and small ways that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone, the ways we have not loved God with our whole heart and the ways we've not loved our neighbors ourselves, when we pray that form prayer that we'll pray in a little bit, we can have a path forward, not to perfection, but a path to forgiveness, to being forgiven. Our passage today from John 21 connects the beliefs that Charlene detailed last week with what Andy will speak on next week. The forgiveness of sins sits right smack in the middle between the church, the communion of saints, and the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. We pick up the story of the resurrected Jesus encountering Simon Peter. And here's a refresher. This is Peter. Simon, as he was called, then met Jesus through his brother Andrew while he was fishing and was called by Jesus to follow him. Jesus visits Peter's house to cure his sick mother-in-law and later becomes a witness to Jesus raising a little girl from the dead. They're so close that Jesus gives Peter uh, or Simon a nickname, Peter, which is something like Rocky or The Rock. It's a name that it's maybe ironically applied to uh, given that one episode where Peter is again on a boat with Jesus and Peter enthusiastically jumps out of the boat to follow Jesus walking on water and takes his eyes off 
of Jesus and sinks like a stone. So the rock is sinking like a stone when he takes his eyes off Jesus. Peter sometimes has some pretty good insights. He made an early confession of Jesus being, quote, the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's never fully clear to Peter that Jesus being the Christ, his Lord and God, might also mean that he might suffer. Peter rebukes Jesus at the thought of it, and for that gets the whole get behind me Satan treatment. And later when Jesus is arrested, Peter cuts off an ear of an arresting soldier, which Jesus, of course, puts back on heels and tells Peter, that's enough, put away your sword. Jesus seems especially honest and forthright with Peter. Peter, for better or worse, is close to the action of Jesus, sometimes in ways that are particularly keen, in tune, and faithful, sometimes in ways that are particularly dense or violent or unfaithful. Jesus predicts that Peter will betray him three times, and Peter is scandalized. He cannot fathom he'd be so unfaithful, and then proceeds to thrice deny his friend and Lord. So that's a recap, the refresher of Peter the Rock. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he appears to his disciples. I love how many stories of Jesus happen around the table with food and eating. There's, a whole, there's not a whole lot of daylight between the actions of Jesus with his friends before his death and with his friends after and through and beyond death. When it comes down to it, for them, their faith and their following is still just fish and food. Jesus encounters Peter, and while we might assume this to be a little awkward because the last time they'd seen each other, Peter had predictably sold Jesus out, and now they were face to face. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, to which he replies, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. The good shepherd is delegating good sheep work to be done by Peter. Jesus asks him, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Take care of my sheep. And then a third time, the story says that this made Peter sad. Maybe this had just triggered the memory of his not once, not twice, but triple denial. Maybe Jesus was actually undoing those denials one by one by reinstating Peter's belovedness in also his entrustedness threefold. You see, as strong, he's the rock, as strong and seemingly final as Peter was throughout his following of Jesus, and as strong and as seemingly final as Peter's denials of Jesus were, they were not the last word. Jesus always has the last word in our lives. We are always more than we have been or know ourselves to be. This was the beautiful good news of Charlene's sermon last week that blistered us in all the right ways, that we are not yet what we are supposed to be. We can afford to be brutally laid open to the ways that we've denied Jesus, 
the ways that we've denied grace and the ways that we've caused massive damage to our neighbors, ourselves, and God's good creation because none of that is the last word. No matter how used to, how colluding with, or how defeated by something you are, sin and death are never the last words. The resurrected one makes forgiveness in sheep feeding the last words for Peter. And Peter, the cracked and crooked rock upon which the church is built, is always kind of a stand-in for us. We, too, must be characterized not by our own shaky foundations, but by the firm foundation of Christ, who defeated sin and death and calls us to join him in calling and caring for the lost sheep who are hurting and hungry. So we sang earlier, the soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. This is the triune God's forgiveness coming to us over and over and over still once more to remind us of God's pledge not to leave us alone when we wander. Maybe you need that good news today. Maybe you need that because you've walked away or maybe you have one foot out the door. Maybe you've been unfaithful to someone you love. Maybe you're waking up to your own complicity in unfaithful systems of oppression and domination. Repent and believe the good news. In the past. God has not given up on you. God has not walked away from you. God will never leave you alone. So in our Tuesday morning group, when we have been talking about uh, the clauses before they happen here and um, sharing some of our own experience, um, we, we learned that uh, there's a lot of evidence that this phrase, we believe in the forgiveness of sins, was actually kind of a late add onto the Apostles' Creed. It was kind of shoehorned in right before the end. And there's a reason why. In the midst of a particularly brutal moment of persecution for those who follow Jesus in the Roman Empire, many of Jesus' followers, like Peter, defected, denied the risen Christ. For all the heroic stories of a costly faith of early martyrs, there are so many unspectacular stories of apostates, deniers. As oppression eased, though, many of these folks were attempting to come back into the fold. And the early church needed to know what to do, whether to trust them, and if there was still a place for them in the fellowship of the faithful. For these saints to be saints, for any saints to be saints, there must be forgiveness of sins. The early church took a firm stance on this. This reminds me of the novel Silence, written by Japanese writer uh, Shusako Indo. Um, I was reading this a few years ago on beach vacation, and that kind of gives you a little clue at how fun I am on vacation. Um, and then a couple years later, it was made into a movie by um, Martin Scorsese. 
Um, this story is fundamentally about silence and the presence of God told through Portuguese missionaries to Japan in the 17th century. To draw out hidden Christians, the persecuting government would force people to deny Jesus by trampling on the fumi. These are like copper or metal plates with uh, pictures of Jesus or the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, to do so in this like highly honor shame oriented culture was to disrespect or to deny one's God in like a terminal way. You couldn't go back after you did this, but to not do this would mean death. In this story, which recounts some actual events from the time, so many people chose their own lives and trampled on the image that many of these plates were just like completely worn smooth by people's feet trampling on them. One of the most interesting and frustrating characters in silence is this guy named Kichihiro. Um, he's just like always showing up around the edges, sometimes drunk, he's always dirty, and despite having trampled the fumi multiple times, he will not leave the priest alone. His faith and you almost want to put faith in scare quotes, is still there in some sort of weak and warped way. Mako Fujimura um, wrote a, a book and some posts about silence, and he writes, Kichiyuro, who has been this Judas figure throughout, turns out to be Father Rodriguez's best friend and most trusted confidant. Kichiyuro refuses to let Father Rodriguez give up his identity as a priest. As Andrew Garfield, who plays Father Rodriguez, says his last lines, but our Lord was not silent. Even if he had been silent, my life until this day would have spoken of him. When he says those lines, the spotlight and strength are transferred literally to Kichiyuro. In this way, Kichiyuro is tending sheep. In this way, Kichiyuro is so much like Peter. In this way, we're all Kichiyuro. A film critic at Vox.com who writes sometimes on faith, Alyssa Wilkins, and she, she wrote, in silence, nobody is Christ but Christ himself. Everyone else is either Peter or Judas, a faltering rejecter for whom there may be some weary hope anyway. What Scorsese has accomplished in adapting Indo's novel is a close reminder that the path to redemption lies through suffering. And that it may not be I who must save the world so much as that I am the one who needs saving. The, the moral of the story, if there is such a thing, is that I'm not the one to save the world, but I am the one who needs saving. In silence, as in the life of Peter, forgiveness holds out the lifeline to salvation. There is a soberness about all this that says that sin and rejection and betrayal and some of the really gross things that we don't like to say or think about ourselves are true and present at all times, but Christ's love is stronger. Christ has defeated sin and death. Therefore, forgiveness, God's forgiveness, makes possible our ability to grant, to ask for, to receive 
forgiveness from and to each other. We tap into God's infinite forgiveness, tap into God's supply that never empties. This is the 70 times seven forgiveness spoken of and embodied by Jesus. This is where the rubber hits the road. Or more appropriately for John's gospel, this is where these words take on flesh and dwell among us. This is exactly why the letter from Jesus' brother James asks us to confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That's James 5, 16. Basically, he's saying, look around, forgive, make your faith tangible. Because we can believe a whole lot of things, but if we are unforgiving people, it's, it's just an academic exercise. Sin's presence also, and we're going to define sin as relational damage in this way. Sin's presence then is also not then like incidental to community. It's not like a barrier to community. Rather, responding to sin is the very stuff of community. In doing this, we embody God, we enact God's forgiveness to each other. We bear witness to the good news. We we actually bear Christ. It works the other way around, too. The logic of the Lord's Prayer is that when we don't forgive, we don't experience forgiveness. Forgive us as we forgive others beckons us to grow in lives so built on forgiveness that our own ability to forgive expands and grows qualitatively and quantitatively to match God's. If we don't forgive others, we only experience a fraction of the forgiveness of God. This is how we follow Peter in loving Jesus. When Jesus asks, do you love me? This is how we follow Peter in loving Jesus, by living lives of forgiveness in sheep feeding, taking care of others and offering healing and forgiveness to others. To close, I, I can't think of a more powerful demonstration of this sort of forgiveness than by the different families of the faithful members of Mother Emanuel Church who were victims of the massacre at the hands of a white supremacist in Charleston five years ago. Two days later, after these people lost their husbands, wives, children, parents, and their pastor, some of the victims' relatives spoke with grief and anger, and through those tears, It said things like, the words I'm haunted by Ethel Lance's daughter, Nadine Collier, she said, I forgive you. She spoke this directly to Dylan Roof. She said, I forgive you. You took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. And this is a clincher. If God forgives you, I forgive you. I don't want to cheapen these words to say that they come easy or that they come automatically or that everyone must always respond 
with this sort of grace in this sort of way or at that speed of response. These are impossible words. These words are a miracle. These words are also just words. It is the the days and weeks and months and years and lifetimes after them that the speaker and the hearer must grow into these words. The same way we are growing into Jesus's words of forgiveness. It's the lives of faith and faithfulness to the faithful, forgiving God that made these words possible in the first place. You can't just conjure this kind of forgiveness out of thin air in the midst of such tragedy. They have to be worked into you over a long period of time. You have to become an expert in forgiveness the same way you become an expert in anything, like spending the proverbial proverbial, uh, 10,000 hours in prayer and proximity to the God who forgives. Her, Her mother, Ethel, was just so steeped in forgiveness that it that it bled out into the the life and words of Nadine. Like Nadine was was discipled um, by Ethel as a disciple of Jesus who knows forgiveness. It's this is what we talk about when we talk about living lives of virtue and growing in our our character and our virtue with God. This this sort of thing then is is not heroic and it's not an outlier even though it sounds like it is the sort of forgiveness is simply the way of jesus again hear me when i say it's simple i don't mean it's easy forgiveness is simply the way of jesus it is the way of the jesus who took the cross for us and with us that we might also be crucified with him, but also raised to a life where forgiveness is not only possible, but where forgiveness is the way. We follow this Jesus who offered forgiveness on the way to the cross. Jesus offered forgiveness to the rebel hanging beside him while he was on the cross. This Jesus who then offers forgiveness afterward to the dear brother who denied him. You see, this is a way of life for Jesus. Forgiveness is a habit for Jesus, and he offers us by his spirit the ability to make it a habit for ourselves. Will you join Jesus in this way of forgiveness today? Will you come to Jesus asking for forgiveness? Will you seek out someone who you need to ask forgiveness from? Will you stop withholding forgiveness from someone else in your life? Will you walk and grow and cultivate this forgiveness way of life? Now pray with me. Lord Jesus, this is, this is hard stuff because it is, just, it is the very good news that we so hope for ourselves, but we have such a hard time offering it to someone else. We want to be able to control who gets forgiven and how and when and how fast. 
But Lord, you forgive us. You forgive us when we walk away. You forgive us when we hurt each other. You call us into this new life of healing and binding up the brokenhearted, of offering repair and reparation to the sin that we've joined in and perpetuated and sometimes even been enslaved by. Lord, we ask that you forgive us. We ask for the strength and the hopefulness and the courage to forgive others. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.